Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. The lesson you are about to hear was part of our 2008 Fall Focus entitled Zealous for Good Deeds. This lesson takes a look at that icon for good deeds, the Good Samaritan. We want to make sure to keep this story in its context and learn what we can about good deeds from this Good Samaritan. So, open your Bible and get ready to study about the Good Samaritan and good deeds. For our guests, so you know, we're in the middle of our fall focus. We're taking an entire month just to talk about good deeds and put together a little pack of cards, zealous for good deeds. And we've got several copies of these out on the table in the foyer, and we want to invite you to take one of these and work through this on your own. There's just 30 days of good deeds each day has a memory, or not a memory verse, but a verse, a message, and then a little devotional message along with that, and finally a practical idea for a good deed each day. In fact, let me just read today. So we're on day 12 as a congregation. You don't have to catch up with us tomorrow. You can just start day one. Go ahead and pick those up and take one with you. Good deeds and holiness is what we're doing today. Message. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. The meaning that goes along with that, James helps us consider three absolutes for connecting with God. Holy speech. If we don't speak kindly to others, God will not listen when we speak to Him. Holy actions. God showed His love for us when we needed spiritual help. We can't love others who need help. What do we really know about God's love and holy life? If we cannot disconnect from sin, so do we even value our connection to God. Excuse me, do we even value our connection to God? And then today's practical movement, our uh, uh, practical idea for a good deed, find a visit to a local orphan's home or with a widow who is lonely or a widower who is bored. So there's something that you can do today, something that we can do as a good deed for today. But I want to invite all of our guests. Pick up one of these on your way out. One of the taxi cards are on the table just as, uh, facing the door. So if you get one of those. And focus on good deeds as we're doing this month. Today we want to take a look at the Good Samaritan and good deeds. And as I was reading the passage, one of the things that, that just stood out to me is that, you know, when Jesus says, do this and you will live, that ought to cause us to perk up a little bit. That ought to cause us to say, okay, wait a minute, I, I, I want to know what's going on here. That's exactly what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 and verse 28, do this and you will live. This was in response to the answer that the lawyer had given. His first question was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that right there ought to bring us to the edge of our seats. The question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Anybody want to know the answer to that question? Okay, well, never mind then. Okay, yeah, thank you. All right, Jonathan wants to, so we'll go ahead and preach the lesson. Now, I know you all do. You don't have to lift your hands. But we want to know the answer to this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, do this and you will live. We have to remember that the story of the Good Samaritan was told in this context. It's all about inheriting eternal life. This is not just a nice story. This is not just something interesting that happened in the Gospels. This is about inheriting eternal life. And so we need to learn 
from the Good Samaritan about good deeds. And I invite you to study this with me this morning. Before we get into that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we lift you up because you are the God of good deeds. And we're so thankful for the great good deed you've done for us. Today, you've given us life and health. We have air to breathe. We ate breakfast this morning. And we've been able to drive in our cars to gather here to meet with your children, to worship you and to edify one another. And we're thankful for all this. We're thankful that you've given us your word so that we can know how to inherit eternal life. And we pray that you would strengthen us today to study it and gain further insight because we want eternal life. But most of all, we want to glorify you. And we pray that you would help us with that. Most of all, we're thankful for the the greatest good deed that you've done for us, and that's your son. We're thankful for the opportunity we've had this morning to remember his life and his death and his resurrection. We pray that what we've done is pleasing to you. Father, we ask that you would help us not only to remember it while we take the Lord's Supper and while we meet here, but to remember this good deed that you've done for us throughout our entire week so that we might live for you. Father, we love you and we want to glorify you, and we praise your name. Thank you for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. What is most often overlooked is what I've just pointed out, that the the parable of the Good Samaritan was not told in a vacuum. It was actually a response to a question, and that, that initial question is found in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Let's just go ahead and read the entire context, and then we'll come back and comment on it for a few moments. In Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood, to, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You, go and do likewise. This all began with a question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turned around and threw that question back to the lawyer who had asked it. Well, well listen, you're, you're a lawyer. You've read the law and studied. What do you think it says? And the man said, Well, I, I think it says that I need to love God and I need to love my neighbor. And Jesus said, That's it. You know the answer. Just do that and you'll live. But the lawyer, now feeling like he had asked a pointless question because he already knew the answer, wanted to justify himself. That's, that's that idea. He says, you know, well, it looked like I asked a stupid question, so now I've got to show why I was asking. Well, here's my real question. Yeah, I knew that I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbor. My real question is, teacher, who is my neighbor? That's the question. And as we're spending a month on good deeds, are we asking this question? We know that we're supposed to do good deeds. We know that we're supposed to love our neighbor. Do we ask the question, 
But who is my neighbor? Who does this really involve? Who is it that I have to make sure to do good deeds for? What limitations are there on this? You know, the reality is, it's not surprising to see who asked this question. He's a lawyer. Lawyers were most often a part of the sect of the Pharisees. These were folks that were very intense about finding out all the lines and being able to dissect every part of the law and know exactly what it demanded of us, exactly how far they had to go. They were the ones who were able to come up with the Sabbath day's journey. You know, they, they, they knew they weren't supposed to be working on the Sabbath, and so they decided that meant they weren't allowed to travel either. And they, they, they scoured through the law and decided, you know what, on a Sabbath day we're allowed to go 2,000 cubits. We're allowed to go 2,000 cubits. But in addition to being able to, to dissect that out and come up with that line, they were also able to come up with a loophole to make sure that they could do even more than that. And what they decided was, you know what, I can actually take something from my house, and I can put on Friday night, I can put it you know, 1,999 cubits from my house. And so on the Sabbath day, I can walk that because I'm allowed to go 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath day. But when I get to this thing that was from my home, now that's an extension of my home. It's like a home satellite. And so now I've walked 2,000 cubits, but now I'm back home, so I can walk another 2,000 cubits. See, boy, they were good at being able to figure out exactly what was being asked. And so this lawyer is saying, I need to know exactly, exactly who is it that I'm supposed to love. Who is my neighbor? And think about the kind of answer he's looking for. He's looking for that. Well, you know what? Your neighbor is anybody who lives within a Sabbath day's journey from you. Your neighbor is anyone who lives three streets from you. Your neighbor is anyone who lives in your town. Your neighbor is anyone who's related to you. He's looking for some kind of exact answer. That's what this lawyer is looking for. But there's kind of a sad implication. Let me back up here, getting ahead on my slides. There's kind of a sad implication from this question. The implication is, I don't want to love everybody. The implication is, this is not about me and love. The implication is, who are the people I absolutely have to do this to? I'm trying to limit it down because you know what? You know, Jesus, if you can prove to me that I have to love Henry, I'll love him. But now, if Henry's not my neighbor, don't expect me to go out of my way loving him, right? You know, you've got to be able to prove to me that Henry's my neighbor, or I'm not going to love him. What kind of limitations might we place on it? Today, as we're considering good deeds for everyone, what kind of limitations might we put on Well, it's family. You know, our neighbor really is our family, or... Our neighbor is anybody that lives in our neighborhood. Or our neighbor really is just talking about other Christians. What kind of limitations might we be saying? I know I'm supposed to love people, but you've got to prove to me exactly who I'm supposed to love. And those are the ones I'll do, and no more. Don't expect me to do anything more than that, because you just can't prove it. In fact, I can almost imagine if Jesus said to him, well, you know what, your neighbor is everybody who lives within two miles of your home. I can almost see the Pharisees and the lawyers saying, okay, now wait a minute. You know, the place where I'm sleeping is not really my home. I'm going to call it something else. That way I don't actually have to love the people that are around there either. And that's the, kind of, that's, that's the way these guys would think. And so we're wanting a specific exact answer so that I can figure out who I don't have to love so I can figure out how to make that group of people I don't have to love even bigger. And the group I do have to love even smaller. That's what's going on in the Pharisees' mind, and the lawyer's mind. 
And so as we take a look at this story, we actually find out that the story is very surprising. It's not surprising that the lawyer asked this question. This is the kind of question lawyers ask. But the story that Jesus gives in response is very surprising. First of all, he's talking about a man that's traveling. He's traveling on the road to Jericho. Now, this automatically says something. We're, we're not near home. Just right off the bat, as Jesus starts telling the story about a man who is traveling, as he answers this question about neighbors, we automatically recognize, oh, this isn't about people who live next door to me. This isn't about people who live in my neighborhood. This, this is a story about somebody who's traveling on the road to Jericho. But then the next thing that's very surprising about it is the hero of the story. Now, I just want you to think about this. The lawyer, who was likely a Pharisee. That's what the lawyers were. Most of the lawyers were Pharisees. As he's listening to this story, he hears about a priest and a Levite that see this harmed, injured, near-dead man, and they walk on the other side of the road. Now, I can almost see that Pharisee with a smug smile on his face. Because, you see, Levites and priests, were commonly members of the sect called the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along. And I can almost hear what's going on in this lawyer's mind. Well, of course the Levite and the priest will walk on the other side. They don't care about loving God because they don't care about eternal life because they don't believe in the resurrection. They obviously don't care about the law of God. They obviously won't follow the law of God and love their neighbor like they're supposed to. And so if he's talking about the Levite and the priest passing by and not obeying the law of God to love their neighbor, I can just see that Pharisee just kind of smugly thinking, oh, I know what's coming next. I know who would stop and, and help this man. Who, who do you think he was thinking? Well, it's going to be a lawyer. It's going to be a Pharisee because he's concerned about the law. And yet the hero was not a Levite. The, the hero was not a priest. The hero was not a lawyer. And the hero was not a Pharisee. The hero was a Samaritan. The one who actually demonstrated the appropriate kind of love which will allow him to inherit eternal life was a Samaritan. Now, don't you think that caused a little bit of shock? How on earth can it be a Samaritan? The Samaritans are dogs. They're, they're mongrels who don't even know where they're supposed to worship God. They don't even really know which God they're supposed to worship. And they certainly don't worship Him according to God's law. Of course, there were Samaritans that submitted to Jesus when He came through town, weren't they? But to this Pharisee, it couldn't possibly be the Samaritan. How could it be the Samaritan? And I, and I even noticed, that when Jesus finally says to him, who proved to be the neighbor to this man? You know, if he didn't just say, I mean, if you were asked that, Levite, priest, and the Samaritan walked by, and I, and I said to you, I said, Don, who proved, to, who proved to be the neighbor? What would you say? You'd say the Samaritan. You know if that guy didn't say the Samaritan? Uh, to me, it's almost like, I, I know it's the Samaritan, but I'm not going to say Samaritan. It's, well, it was the guy who showed him mercy. He was the one who was the neighbor. I mean, it's, you just almost get that image of I, I, it just so can't be the Samaritan that even when I know it's the Samaritan, I can't say it's the Samaritan. It's the guy who showed him mercy. See, this is how shocking it was. The Samaritan was the neighbor. But what was the answer that Jesus was giving with this story? His answer was not, well, Samaritans are our neighbor. His answer was not, folks who are traveling and hurt are our, our neighbor. His answer was, whoever we come in contact with, that's our neighbor. 
If we're traveling on the road to Jericho and we see somebody in need, that person is our neighbor. Everyone we come in contact with is our neighbor. I want you to look around you right now. Look at, look at these people here that are around you. These people are your neighbors, especially Kurt, Wesley, and Steve. Now, these, these people are your neighbors. Right now, these are your neighbors, the folks that you're coming in contact with. When you leave here and you head to the restaurant and you eat lunch, the waitress is your neighbor. When you leave there and you head to Walmart and you see that greeter in the door, that guy is your neighbor. The checkout clerk is your neighbor. Those people that are walking around, they are your neighbors. When you get home and somebody's walking down the street, that couple, they're your neighbors. When you're walking downtown and you see the homeless guy with the cardboard sign, that guy is your neighbor. When you're driving down the road and you see the family pulled over to the side with a flat tire, they are your neighbors. When you're at work with your boss or your coworkers or your customers, they are your neighbors. This is what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, everybody you come in contact with at that moment, that's your neighbor. Love them and you'll live. That's his point. You know, the lawyer didn't like that because what the lawyer wanted to know was, you know, which 15 people do I have to do this for? Jesus says, whoever you're in contact with, that is your neighbor. But one of the other intriguing things about this story and the way Jesus deals with it is, is when he gets down to the end, he says to the lawyer, which of the three proved to be the neighbor to the man who was robbed? He didn't actually talk about the man who was robbed as being the one who was the neighbor who needed a good deed. His point was more about the person who needed to do the good deed, and that says something about this. You see, the Pharisee wanted to know about who qualifies for me to love them, and Jesus says the real issue is whether you're going to be neighborly. That's the real issue. It's about you. But the interesting thing, he didn't get the guy to say that the robber, or the robbed man was a neighbor. He got him to say that the Samaritan was the neighbor. Now, even though he wouldn't say the word Samaritan, he got him to say that the Samaritan was the neighbor. And what that says for us is that no matter who the person is or what they've done or what we think of them, because when, when he was talking about this Samaritan, in, in the lawyer's mind, the Samaritan, like I said, he's the dog, irreligious. He doesn't deserve love. He can't possibly be the neighbor. And yet that's exactly what Jesus says. He says he's the neighbor. And basically the point was if roles were reversed and you came along and found a Samaritan beaten, half dead, you'd need to love him because he's the neighbor. No matter what they've done, no matter what they can do, we're supposed to love them. They're our neighbors. So listen, you understand what this means? These brethren that are here around you, even if they've done something bad to you, you're still supposed to love them. That waitress, even if she's done just an awful job serving you, she's still your neighbor. You're still supposed to love her. The checkout clerk, if it ended up being a jerk, still your neighbor. Still supposed to love her. You get the point. If that car that's on the side of the road has a bumper sticker for the other person going for president, still supposed to love him. Still your neighbor. If that guy with the cardboard... Uh, it seems like he's just a jerk and it must be an atheist. Still your neighbor. If your boss or coworkers or customers just cuss you, still your neighbor. Still supposed to love them. Whoever you come in contact with, no matter what they've done to you or what they can do for you, 
we're supposed to love. That's who our neighbor is. That's the answer Jesus was given. But as we take a look at this parable, I think we can see love in action, or we might call it the anatomy of a good deed. What a good deed actually looks like. What makes something a really good deed? And, and the things I'm about to share with you don't necessarily say, you know, if you can't check off the list on all of them, it's not a good deed. I'm not saying that. These are just some principles that demonstrate, here's a good deed. The very first thing that we recognize is that good deeds spring from mercy. There in Luke chapter 10 and verse 37, as Jesus had said, which one proved to be the neighbor? The lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. In the story, it said that the Samaritan had compassion for the man who was half dead. Good deeds spring from mercy. Now, we often think of mercy as equal to forgiveness. But that's not the case. Forgiveness is a form of mercy. It is a kind of mercy, but mercy does not equal forgiveness. The word mercy and the word translated mercy really is the idea of relieving affliction. It's seeing somebody afflicted and doing something actual to relieve it. Mercy is not feeling sorry for people. Mercy is not seeing somebody and just saying, oh, that's so awful. Really hope things get better. Mercy is doing something actively in order to relieve affliction. That, that's what mercy is. That's what the Samaritan had done. He saw this man half dead on the side of the road. He needed medical attention. He needed a place to stay. He did something actively because he had compassion. He showed mercy. He relieved the affliction. Now here's something I think we need to recognize from this. It is a good deed. It is a good deed for us to have one another over into our home. That's a good deed. That's something that we're supposed to be doing as Christians, spending time together. That is a good deed. But the greater good deed is to invite somebody into our home who doesn't have food, who is running on hard times. In fact, look in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There is the greater good deed, finding people who can't repay and giving them some food. Because that's where mercy is. Now, now don't get me wrong. Uh, you, you still are required to invite me over to your house to eat sometimes. <clears throat> and, and we'll have you back over to ours too. But the mercy is really when we're relieving someone's affliction. I can't help but think about Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You want mercy? You want mercy from God? It says that we have to be merciful to others. You see, often we hear today, God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that? God helps those who help themselves. What Jesus actually says is, God helps those who help others. That's Jesus' rule. God helps those who help others. Good deeds come from mercy. Good deeds often involve risk. There in Luke chapter 10, when the Samaritan 
Beginning in verse 33, he journeyed, came to where the robbed man was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. He took big risks. The first risk was when he saw the man, and he got down off of his animal, and he went over to, to see if he could help. It could have been a trap. It could have been somebody waiting there so, so that they were laying in ambush to, to get this Samaritan as he was coming along. But even if it wasn't a trap, the mere fact that the guy was laying there having them beaten and stripped and robbed demonstrated that the people who beat, stripped, and robbed were somewhere in the area. I mean, even if I don't think it's a, a trap, those guys who did this might still be here, and if I stop, they'll do it to me. And that's a risk. But then he got past that risk, and he got the guy up on his animal, and he, and he gave him some medical attention. They took him to the inn, and here's the big risk. He gave the innkeeper two denarii, and then said, listen, if it takes more than this, when I get back, I'll cover the rest. Now, how much would that be? And how do we know that the innkeeper won't take advantage of him? And how do I know that this guy, when he gets a little bit better, won't take advantage? That's a risk. Now, I, I don't necessarily want to say that every good deed involves risk. I, we might could say that, but I don't necessarily want to overstate the case. But I'll tell you, most good deeds involve risk. At, at the very least, good deeds make us vulnerable to other people for them to take advantage of us. And how many people don't do a good deed because we're so afraid, well, if I do that for them, they'll take advantage of me. I think the thing that we need to remember is that nobody ever went to hell for being taken advantage of. Good deeds involve risk. And when we're doing God's will, some people will take advantage of us. But that's their stuff. That's not our stuff. Think about Jesus. He came to do a good deed. And what happened to him? But he did the good deed anyway. Good deeds are always a sacrifice. Now, I'm willing to say this always. Good deeds are always a sacrifice. Because if nothing else, when you do a good deed, you're sacrificing the time that you could have been pursuing something personal. When you're doing a good deed for somebody else, you could have been doing something just for yourself, and so you sacrifice the time. So good deeds always have a sacrifice involved. The Samaritan had a sacrifice. First of all, he sacrificed his place on the animal. He laid up the wounded man on the animal, and now he walked the rest of the way. He sacrificed some time. I don't know where he was going, but I've been on trips before. And, you know, I, I don't really want to stop. I, I can, I can kind of understand sometimes the Levite and the priest, why they may have passed by. They were going somewhere. They were probably on a schedule. I, I, listen, I've passed by people stranded on the side of the road, and, and I could drive 70 miles an hour and still get wherever I wanted to go after I was done with them because I'm thinking, oh, I, oh, I can't do it now because I've got to get somewhere. He sacrificed the time. I, I don't know where he was going, but instead of being able to get on farther on his trip, he had to stop and deal with this guy and then stopped at the very next inn and spent the night there. Who knows where he could have been on his trip by that time? Sacrificed his time. He sacrificed his goods. He poured the oil and wine, using it to, to provide medical help for this man. What would happen if later on in the trip the Samaritan got hurt? What would he use? But then the big sacrifice. He gave the innkeeper two denarii. 
and then said, whatever else it costs, I'll pay you that when I get back. A denarii was a day's wages for common labor. Just, just think about that. How much money are you making a day? Double that, and that's what he sacrificed. Possibly plus some. Is that a sacrifice? Absolutely. Good deeds will cost us a sacrifice of time. It will cost us a sacrifice of our resources. It will cost us a sacrifice of money. But that's what good deeds are. Good deeds are about putting ourselves down in service to others. It's sacrificing from ourselves to help provide relief for others. To help them. And we need to be willing to sacrifice if we're going to be a good Samaritan. The next thing that I recognize is that good deeds are often undeserved. Why did this guy laying on the side of the road deserve to be helped? Had he ever done anything for the Samaritan? Would he ever do anything for the Samaritan? There's absolutely no way for the Samaritan to look at this man and have any idea if he would ever be able to pay him back, if he would ever return the favor. You know, the natural assumption, though it doesn't tell us, and I think we need to be careful with this, but the natural assumption is that the man's a Jew. The Jew had situations in reverse where he looked at the Samaritan and said, well, you're just getting what you deserve. How often do we do that same kind of thing? Well, look at how afflicted this person is. They're probably just getting what they deserve. I think the Levite and the priest, as they were passing by, one of the things they might have thought to themselves was, well, clearly this guy's not been following God well. If this guy had been following God and living wisely and living faithfully, God wouldn't have let this happen. He probably just got what he deserved. Do we ever look at folks like that? Well, you wouldn't be in the situation if you'd made wise financial decisions. It's your own stupid fault. Do we want God to treat us like that? What would happen if God treated us the way we often treat folks who are afflicted? What if God looked at us and said, Why should I do anything about your sin? You're just getting what you deserve. It's, it's your own stupidity that caused this. You made these choices, now you're just going to have to live with it. Now listen, I don't believe that we should be enablers. I understand that, that Paul said if a man won't work, don't let him eat. We shouldn't enable that kind of action. But, but brethren, we also need to remember the golden rule, as we call it, from Matthew seven twelve. However you want people to treat you is how you need to treat others. It doesn't say treat them the way they deserve. It doesn't say treat them the way they've treated you. It doesn't say treat them the way they would treat you. Treat them the way you want to be treated. And if you made some dumb decisions and were in affliction, what would you want others to do? Be merciful, maybe? I know you do, because that's what you wanted God to do when you made some dumb decisions and sin, and you asked Him to be merciful. So oftentimes, good deeds are undeserved. And we don't need to justify our way out of good deeds just because the person doesn't deserve it. Because with what manner we judge, we will be judged. And finally, good deeds are done without expectation of reward. As this Samaritan got down off of his animal and, and, and applied the needed medical attention he could, there was nobody else watching. 
There was nobody who was going to offer accolades and praise. He had no way of knowing if this man would ever pay him back. He wasn't doing this because he expected something in return. He was doing this because he was zealous for good deeds. What a great example. If we're doing something because we want a reward from man, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1 says we have no reward with our Father. Good deeds are done without expectation of reward. Now, that, that doesn't mean you don't ever receive one. But a lot of people have done good deeds and have received rewards and accolades and praises. He's not saying it's wrong to receive that. It's about the motivation. Why am I doing this? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 says, Let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's our motivation. We don't want a reward for us. We want people to see God's love through us so that they'll glorify Him. That's what we're looking for. And if we're looking for our own accolades, what we're doing is not really a good deed. We're still just being selfish. Who's my neighbor? Everyone I come in contact with. What do I need to do? I need to have mercy. I need to take risks. I'm going to have to sacrifice, even for folks who don't deserve it, without expectation of reward. Those are good deeds. But as I said, we can't forget that there is a context here. We can't forget that this entire story started off with a question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer was, love God and love your neighbor. We can't miss this because what we've just learned from the Good Samaritan is not nice stuff to get to sometime if you have time left over. This was an answer to what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, love the neighbor. Love Samaritan. And how shocking it must be because, brethren, within this context, you know what this story says? It says the Samaritan was getting eternal life and the Levite and the priest were not. And that's really shocking because the Levite and the priest were probably either walking to perform their temple duty or they were leaving to go back home after having done so. They had performed the outward signs of religion They'd gone through the ceremonies and the formalities, and still they were not going to inherit eternal life. But the Samaritan was. Brothers and sisters, understand what this means for us. We can go to church every Sunday. Go to church. We can take the Lord's Supper every Sunday and only on Sunday. We can, we can assemble with the church that gets all the doctrine right. We can give on the Lord's Day and only on the Lord's Day. We can sing without instruments as the Scripture sets forth authorization. We can make sure that the church we go to is not itself involved in, in spending its money for welfare things. And that's right. The church shouldn't be involved in that. It's not the church's mission. But if we're just sitting here in our holy huddle hashing out all the ins and outs of Christ's doctrine for His local congregation, and we're not allowing the love and mercy of Jesus Christ to shine forth to our neighbors, we will not inherit eternal life. 
We need to understand that. And remember, the hero of the story wasn't a Pharisee either. It wasn't the person who sat around all day trying to figure out all the ins and outs and draw every line and make sure he did specifically everything absolutely correctly and going through all those loopholes. It was the person who showed the love of Jesus. Now, brethren, the doctrine of Christ is absolutely important. When it comes to what the church does, we need to make sure we're following the pattern. All that's part of the love of God, and it takes both. The problem that I see sometimes is it seems like we go on these pendulum swings. And we spend all our time trying to love God so much and make sure everybody else loves God by doing everything specifically correct doctrinally. We forget about loving our neighbors. We've got to understand this. It takes both. It takes both. We won't go to heaven just because we're going to the right church. We inherit eternal life when we love God and love our neighbors. Having a month of good deeds is not just let's do something because we need to do something. Having a month of good deeds is about inheriting eternal life. Let's help each other with that. I hope this lesson was beneficial and edifying to you. More importantly, I hope it glorified God. Let's remember what we learned. First, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. And my neighbor is whoever I come in contact with. Further, we learned about the anatomy of a good deed. We learned, one, good deeds spring from mercy. Two, good deeds often involve risk. Three, good deeds are always a sacrifice. Four, good deeds are done even when they are not deserved. Five, good deeds are done without expectation of reward. If you have any questions about this lesson or any spiritual needs, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. If you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you face-to-face. -face. Please be a guest at any of our classes or assemblies. You can find meeting times and directions to our meeting place at our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.